we know retail is performance in many ways. And that's the difference from the cosmopolitan service cape, right? It's the opposite of the immersive service cape. With the cosmopolitan service cape, you don't want immersion at all. What we find is that you actually want to give uh, the experience back in a cosmopolitan service cape because consumers are so, because using objects and demonstrating how they use is so important, you need to give power to them. Welcome to another episode of Shopology, a show that's all about the science of shopping behavior and some of the big emerging trends in retail. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Pallon, a senior lecturer in marketing at Swinburne University of Technology. Each episode of Shopology, I dive into a, a different big topic in retail or consumer behavior and try to bring in some guests that are experts in a particular area and really dive into the science behind some of the shopping behavior trends that we're observing across the industry. This episode, I speak to Associate Professor Bernardo Figueredo, who's from RMIT University. Now, Bernardo and I have known each other for a little while through a connection at RMIT. My wife actually worked there and did her PhD there. So, I've known Bernardo for a while. We see each other at some conferences and we also have a shared interest in this customer experience in retail kind of research. But I think what you'll see from this chat is, you know, we have somewhat different methodological approaches that we apply, but very much interested in understanding that idea of customer experience and how it applies to a retail setting. Bernardo is also on an advisory panel for one of my PhD students who's looking at augmented reality. So, few connections there with Bernardo. We, we have a great chat in this episode. It's about some recent research that Bernardo did with some of his colleagues around this idea of a cosmopolitan service scape. Now, when I saw the paper published and Bernardo talking about it, I was immediately sort of intrigued. It's not a term that I guess I had seen a lot before, this idea of a cosmopolitan service scape. Now, my understanding of the service scape idea, it's that's a common one that we talk about in retail around not just the physical environment, but the whole entire environment that a, a service takes place in. And so for retail, we think about the physical store, but also the website and the people that are in kind of those places, the experience that customers have when engaging with that service or that retail environment. But the idea of a cosmopolitan service scape was quite new to me. And so, I thought this was a really interesting piece of research that Bernardo and his colleagues had done. And I wanted to chat to him about it. I think from this chat, you really hear some this interesting trend of this mis mixing but not merging of different cultures and how that applies to this cosmopolitan idea and, and particularly cosmopolitan consumers. I think it's also a really interesting example of a quite detailed research method that Bernardo and his colleagues applied where, you know, we, we joke about in the chat, you know, he went there something like 16 times and, and dined at this restaurant that he's focusing on and how that sounds like, you know, a great way to go to work. But really that idea of what we would call ethnographic study of being immersed in a particular experience to really understand it both on a personal level, but then by talking to others and observing what they're doing and talking to people directly. So, I think it was a really fascinating chat, both in terms of 
the topic itself, this idea of servicescapes becoming more cosmopolitan or appealing to cosmopolitan consumers and what that might mean for other settings, other retailers, other brands that could think about applying some of these ideas, but also in thinking about how we can learn about customer experience, both by experiencing things ourselves as researchers, but then by immersing ourselves in an environment, observing how others interact, and then talking to them directly, trying to unpack some of their own experiences in their own subjective ways and diving into some of that rich, detailed data and insights that we can get from those experiences. So a really interesting chat. And here it is with Bernardo. Bernardo, thank you so much for coming on Shopology. It is an absolute pleasure to chat with you today. Hi, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here as well. Bernardo, you and I, uh, you know, have known each other for quite a while through our academic circles, through some conferences. My wife worked at RMIT, you're at RMIT. But for the listeners who may not be familiar with you, can you talk a little bit about your background, what led you into academia as a career and your interest in really sort of consumer behavior, consumer experience research that you do? Yeah, sure. My background, um, so I started as a, you know, I did a, a bachelor's in business administration. That was back in Brazil, where I'm from. And um, I started uh, right away. I was really passionate about marketing. And uh, that was the age of branding when branding was really becoming the cool stuff. And um, so I went to uh, work straight away for Procter & Gamble in Brazil. And it was cool because they were just starting uh, Procter & Gamble there. And Unilever was the big the big competitor, I mean, th- that was the big the one in, in Latin America in general, and Prectors was the starting. So it was interesting because between myself and the president of the company in Brazil, there was only one person. Uh, so you could actually be part of lots of decisions, even early on in my career. Um, they were expanding in the uh, medical uh, section. They, they had uh, bought Vix uh, Richardson, and then we were... Like I was straight away in charge of Metamucil in Brazil, so it was quite quite. I mean, it was I was thrown into fire very early on. Uh, I was still at uni when I was doing those things, so it was quite quite interesting, very uh, exciting, very fast times for me. So that's like the world of marketing. Amazing. What what got you into then, sort of that academic space and you know researching? I think lots of different people have different paths into academia and research what got you so fascinated into sort of diving into those big questions and and researching yeah so i had a a few years in the industry so after proctor um i moved to unilever (laughs) to the competitor uh we were working with the big uh, you know in trade marketing with the big supermarkets you know carrefour and uh, walmart was coming to brazil and trying to see how we would, uh, you know, do B2B. So it was quite fascinating. But uh, the, the co- I mean, if you have an inquisitive mind, the corporate world is is great, but it, it doesn't give you time to think. I would have all these questions about well, why is this happening and why something else is happening. And I would never have time to actually think because it would, the next task would be coming. And remember having, like, people would have bedrolls, uh, 
that they would keep in their office in like both Procter and Unilever so that they could work at night if needed. Um, so um, I, then I tried to, to be an entrepreneur for a while. Like I was a CEO of, of a small company and we were working with um, uh, bringing, I uh, was helping a friend with uh, bringing art objects from, from Africa into Brazil and selling to architects and museums and all that. It was very like, so I was in charge of trying to see how we could best frame those products as, as you know, in, in marketing. And I, I was fascinated by the way that um, the products would change their symbolic value. We would buy something that was every, an everyday product for some of the, like the, at, at the tribes there. And we would be selling them as pieces of arts, and so, or uh, something that would be good, good for a house or for an architect to as a decoration object. So I thought it was very interesting how this very same product would transform depending on the the audience. Uh, very marketing <laughs> and a bit of nerdy as well. But I decided to do a master's uh, back then in marketing, and it was. Back then, you had the masters and you had a thesis, like a proper thesis. It was a, a mix of masters by research and masters. And I wanted to study how that process of changing in meaning. Um, and that's how I entered into um, academia. And I was fascinated by consumer research and also um, uh, retail um, in general. So places um, that would offer, you know, these possibilities of symbolic value, of access to symbolic value. And, and that's how I, I came to Australia, actually, to study um, at UNSW. Um, uh, consumer. I, I already knew that I wanted to study consumer culture, consumer research. That was my focus from the very beginning. We have a sort of similar journey there in terms of, uh, I was never a CEO of a, of a startup, but that idea of, you know, working corporately and not necessarily having that time to think, but being fascinated about some of those big questions and the why behind what consumers do, why we, you know, and why we do what we do ourselves, right? We are all consumers. And so to me, it was as much about researching others as it was about researching myself, um, which got me into this academic space. You, you mentioned there, you know, that fascination with retail and how it can lead to symbolic value. Um, you recently led a paper that was published in the Journal of Retailing, which is sort of the big journal for the retailing space. And, you know, I'll admit to being a big career goal of mine to publish something in that journal. So congratulations, firstly. But the the topic is about, it really struck me when I saw it, which is why I reached out and said, I need to chat to Bernardo about this paper. So the title is about cosmopolitan service scapes, right? And I saw these terms and I was like, these are words that I've sort of seen before, but I'm not sure I completely, you know, know everything about or know exactly what they mean. And so it really grabbed my attention. Um, so I'm really interested to dive into that paper and the research that sat behind it. But perhaps we can sort of break it down a little bit for me to start with in terms of that that term cosmopolitan, right? Because when I was reading your paper, I was struck by, well, there's actually a lot more to this idea of being cosmopolitan, cosmopolitanism, what it means to be a cosmopolitan consumer. You know, I'm fascinated about that. Can you tell me a little bit about that idea of being cosmopolitan? 
Yeah, sure. <laughs> that's that's a, a favorite topic of mine. It happened to be the the topic of my uh, whole PhD, to be honest. Um, yeah, I was um, I started studying luxury items, and then somebody said that you should really study something that intrigues you in life. And I was fascinated by people that moved around, and you know, these high flyers, and that would go to one place and live in Singapore, move to Hong Kong, and move to Berlin and to New York. I said, I want to hang out with these people and I will study these people and how they consume differently. So that became the topic of my PhD. And I learned a lot about cosmopolitanism. So it's it's it can be a cocktail, <laughs> but that's not what we're referring to. Um, a, a cosmopolitanism is, um, I mean, from a consumer behavior perspective, is that capacity of uh, being flexible and adaptable when you are consuming um, objects. Um, so uh, the idea is that whenever you are consuming, you know, uh, a, a TV or um, a car or any any item for your house or any food, uh, you're not just consuming it for its functional value. You're also consuming these products for what they represent uh, to you. So symbolically, they are also important. So that's, that happens uh, for everyone, not just cosmopolitans. That's part of consumer <laughs> uh, behavior. But um, when people, um, so when, if you're bred and born in uh, Australia, uh, you you kind of tend to accept uh, these symbolic meanings as uh, you take it for granted, right? So, you know, fast eating at McDonald's, uh, is a sandwich and all that, but it happens in a, in a certain space. It means a, a certain things and it means that maybe you're in a hurry or maybe you're, so there, there are certain meanings attached to it. When people travel to different cultures, what happens is that they are exposed to uh, different ways of consuming. So it's not just about, you know, what you do with it, but different ways of consuming. So you look at how, for example, in, in China, they will have, you know, maybe noodles for, for breakfast, but here we would never have noodles for breakfast. We will have it in a different uh, time of the day. So there are different uh, rituals associating uh, associated with consumption. And cosmopolitans, they are the ones that end up mastering uh, those different ways. And not only that, but it, they, they master that because they have to, because, you know, as, as you travel and you go to other places, they, they master uh, that, but that became, with time and with globalization, also a sign of status, right? So if you if you know what they mean, if you know what you know an avocado is in a certain part of the world, you can talk about it and you can show how your knowledge about other places. Um, so because of that, you also have the cosmopolitan that has not traveled too much. So someone maybe that does not have those the means, but one that kind of cultural capital, as we call it, that symbolic power of having it. So this person would read magazines or watch MasterChef, which is a, which is a show that is cosmopolitizing uh, the eating habits, right? They were used to be local, but now you talk about, you know, these different spices from all over the world. Uh, so all, the, all this process is, is uh, what we call, uh, you know, cosmopolitization of the world. <laughs> it's not just globalization, but it's 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 a globalization that hap happens in a in a way that creates hierarchies, uh, symbolic hierarchies. I hope this is not too complex, but the idea is that um, 
if you dominate, if you master these categories of uh, of symbols related to different cultures, you're also um, displaying um, notions that will set yourself as a, a you know higher level consumer. You know, you kind of know more, and uh, and you can display that to others, uh, right? Yeah, I'm fascinated about that bit where you talk about, you know, it, it has some capital, it has some value, it has some status in that, you know, you're well-traveled or you know things about these different cultures, you can interpret those different meanings. But it's also, as you were just saying there, you talk about like that almost being, you know, a performance that people want to show, or show off that they have this sort of history, they know this understanding and this meaning. And, and that's where the idea of the cosmopolitan service scape sort of emerges, right, is this, is this environment that allows for that performance and to, you know, show off that cultural social capital. Uh, is, am I right there that that's sort of the, the essence of what we're talking about when we talk about a cosmopolitan service scape? It, it is. It's exactly that. Uh, but what's interesting is that it's actually a puzzle because when I was studying uh, this, you know, high flyers, people that travel all over the world, the idea that you would have a space only for that is actually counterintuitive because uh, they like to show. So I would go to um, meetings of internations. I don't know if you know, but it's a it's an organization where it's all over the world, but you know, expats would meet. And then you would have the conversations or like, no, I saw, you know, I went on holidays and I, I went to swim with dolphins uh, in Miami. And then somebody said, well, but have you swum with dolphins in, you know, Hector dolphins in New Zealand? And that like they would, kind of, that story would be a way of showing that you, you know, a little bit more, you know, all kind of the, the dolphins in Miami are dull because you really have to do that in the wild with, uh, you know, minus five degrees in the, water and the temperature is like this and the hectrodolphins are the real ones that you need to. So those stories are part of like how they would uh, play that status to perform that status to others. So the idea that you have a, um, a place where that would happen is counterintuitive because that's exactly like, how are you going to show that in a, in a single place when it's all about knowing the different places and connecting those different places? However, these places exist. And, and and that's why we studied them. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and they do exist, right? And I think that's what made this sort of your paper and this research, you know, so interesting is that, you know, as you say, it's somewhat a counterintuitive idea, but then when it's put into practice and it's done well, you know, it can actually be quite popular, right? So you in this, uh, in this paper picked a specific location, which was the Red Rooster Harlem, which was interesting when I read it as well, because again, this is the, the different meaning, right? When you talk about Red Rooster here in Australia, I think of a fast food uh, grilled chicken place that would be my family on a Friday uh, night because they, everyone was sick of cooking. We'd go and get this takeaway roast chicken and, you know, something that they called mashed potatoes that I'm not, it was maybe 30% actually potatoes. I'm not sure what else it was, but, you know, that didn't. So that meaning, that name means something very different to me than the actual place that you studied. What is it about that place? Or can you tell me a little bit about it, actually, and what made you so fascinated or why that was the focus of this study? 
Yeah, no, that's interesting. <laughs> this is normally the reaction that I get here in Australia when you talk about the red rooster. Um, but no, the red rooster that we're talking about, uh, this red rooster Harlem, is a restaurant um, that is uh, uh, created by the celebrity chef called Marcus Samuelson. Uh, he's quite well known in the you know, chef world and the culinary world. He was born uh, in Ethiopia, but he was uh, uh, raised by uh, his uh, foster parents in, in Sweden. And that's how he learned how to cook with his grandmother. And, and he, he has a very cosmopolitan story himself because he then moved to France and Switzerland and as he became a chef. And then eventually he ended up in, uh, in the US where he worked some famous restaurants like the Aquavit and all that. And finally he opened this one. But um, instead of opening it in a glamorous part of New York, he chose to do it in Harlem, which is actually a, a very cosmopolitan thing to do when you go to a gentrifying area and you you kind of adapt this you know cultural symbols from the area, but not for 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 the locals only. But you know the restaurants full of tourists and people that go from you know Sweden and different parts of the world and to just to see what what is it like you know. And inside it's it's very cosmopolitan in terms of the crowd. It would attract you know if you want to be bit different if you want to say that you've done something different in new york which is already a place where <laughs> everything is already you know one one point up i would say in terms of you know status and uh, th that's the place to go where it's cool but it's not you know too expensive it's uh, so that's that vibe of the restaurant the reason we chose that restaurant was the restaurant chose me i would say because we um uh, one of the authors in this paper, uh, Hannah Larsen, she's, she's a, a Danish scholar, but she was working for NYU back then. So the rooster was um, a place that she would go sometimes to eat. And she was fascinated by it. And uh, very, very um, quickly, she realized that it was something about the restaurant that was different. It was some kind of live, liveliness that was not just, you know, it was ethnic in a way but it was not at all um because it was not trying to frame it as like oh we are a restaurant from harlem but we are also not so what is that um she was fascinated by that uh and and she uh also um connected to uh, jonathan bean the other author who is an architect uh, also works sometimes in consumer culture research uh, and they approached me because they said, we think this is cosmopolitan, but we don't know how to <laughs> uh, theorize this or frame this as cosmopolitan. You've been studying this, your you know, PhD and all that. So uh, what do you think? So they sent me like his biography. Uh, he has a book called Yes, Chef, uh, which is quite interesting. It, it, it's important to understand it's not just what they thought, but it's also how the, like, the media also uh, portrays him as you know new york times and many um uh articles about him he was the one that cooked uh for you know the obama family in the uh, white house dinner and the opening dinner i mean he he is the icon in that you know area and he's always framed as this cosmopolitan the one that is integrating creating diversity and integrating and and all that so um 
he became like, a, okay, we need to understand what's going on in that restaurant. Does he know what's, uh, one of the questions like, does he know what's going on? Is, is that just by chance or is that on purpose? Is it designed? It, and it is. I mean, the question I will tell you, it is. I mean, they know exactly what they're doing, which is fascinating. But then how, how, how do you capture the attention of cosmopolitans if that attention is constantly moving and they need to keep building you know, their profile and showing their competences in, in interpreting different symbols from different parts of the world? Um, that was the, that, that's what, what drove us there. Yeah, fascinating. And I really enjoyed reading and hearing some of the things that, you know, they do, you say about that direct plan. I think one of the things you talked about observing and, and, and even interacting with is, is I think they called it the wall. So they called the wall where it's this sort of the collection of different artifacts and, and, you know, a, a Swedish cookbook next to a Japanese samurai sword. And I'm, I'm making up those examples, but it's, you know, those specific very different, not clashes, but I think they talk about the mixture of all of those different cultures and times and and places. You know, what are some of those things, what are some of the real standout things or or things that make this location so cosmopolitan? What are they doing to sort of appeal to those consumers? Yeah, so you're right to point to the wall because the wall was something that every every single person we talked to was attracted by the wall. When you also we went many times to dinners there, and it was all research, <laughs> yeah. very pleasant uh, research. Um, we would, you know, that's interesting because it's a quite very. Um, we would be doing research, but at the same time tasting the, the, the different, you know, the blends of uh, different dishes. And I've got and to get it, into this type of research. You, you, yeah, it's, it's much more fun than crunching data sets. Yeah, yeah. There, there you go. <laughs> it takes longer for a reason. <laughs> um, we the, the the wall was, I think, was one of the. There was always a point when you, you know, you know that you need to decipher that part of the research in order to that that's the point like if we crack this code here we're going to open up the the rest you know you understand what's going on in the restaurant it was very much that you know uh, because because the the wall was um was this like the shelves this like a bit of a -a bric-a-brac type of shelves where you would have um objects uh from different parts of the world and sometimes they were super on your face like you know it would be an abba record and you know the ABBA record would be there just because Samuelson is from Sweden but that's like too obvious in a way and and then there would be something that's super subtle but only like Swedish people would understand that that's Swedish um, and then references to Ethiopia which if you had read the book his like biography autobiography you would know what kind of uh, references they are and that would be things from Harlem and and the and the place, and there would be things from certain uh, uh, American, certain food cuisine, which is part of the. So there was a lot to decipher from that, and people were just drawn to it. Um, so that was the starting point, because if people are drawn to it, right, that's what you want in retailing. <laughs> if people are drawn to something, uh, they are onto they are onto something here. You know, why is that? causing you know how how is that effect even being created and what's happening with that so that's kind of like our starting point 
it's interesting you spoke about there that the sort of levels where you know the some some stuff is sort of pretty obvious but then other stuff you know you really have to have that deep knowledge to be able to interpret it or understand i think reading one of the one of your participants or one of the diners that you spoke to that was sort of uh, you know getting that sense of pleasure and status from in their mind being able to interpret some of those you know more nuanced things and and that is part of the appeal for those cosmopolitan consumers is being able to as you say you know perform or show that to others of of you know reinforcing their own sort of knowledge and and cultural status which i found a fascinating sort of flip on as you say that retail measure where you're trying to draw people in and and often you even talk about retail being a performance this is almost providing the means for the consumers themselves in this case the diners to to put on a performance or to perform themselves i found that whole sort of interplay really fascinating that's and that's the crux of it that's the whole thing because we also found it fascinating um we know retail is performance in many ways and that's the difference from the cosmopolitan service cape right it's the opposite of the immersive service cape right if you go to a, a movie uh, especially if it's a movie you know like avatar or, you know, you want to be immersed in that movie. You don't want that experience to be broken by anything. You know, if a child screams in the, the, the movies, it's just like, this is not supposed to be here, right? Um, with the Cosmopolitan Service Cape, it, this is different because it, you don't want immersion at all. What we find is that you actually want to give uh, the experience back to the, I mean, it's always Experience is always co-created, but the level of co-creation, the, the amount of uh, power that you give to consumers when they are co-creating the, those meanings varies from, from place to place. In a cosmopolitan service case, because consumers are so, because using objects and demonstrating how they use is so important, you need to give power to them. Because we very early on, one of the techniques that we used uh, was to, to dine with uh, groups of people. And we realized that the, uh, the wall was important because people were talking about the wall. It's not so much what they felt when they experienced the wall. It was because the wall gave a reason, gave a, they were props for people to talk about and demonstrate, you know, oh, I know this book or, you know, I know this. And that reminds me of X, Y, and Z. So, and these conversations were very important for people that were there. So uh, we very quickly realized the objects were very important and they were working as props for people. So the, the metaphor that we started working on after, you know, like half, halfway through was the, the metaphor of a, a playground or a, like Lego, you know, um, when you offer those Lego pieces and people have to um, put the pieces together, but you're not, you're not giving the whole picture because what happens if you give the whole picture, if you give the framing, I mean, you could, then you lose the cosmopolitan. And this is like this is what happens, for example, in um, ethnic retailing, where you know you go if you go to a, a restaurant um, that is you know a Thai restaurant, let's put it that way, and then you go okay, you recognize that it's Thai, there are some Thai elements in there and all that, 
that's that's okay that's interesting but that in itself doesn't give you much to i mean a cosmopolitan would go to a thai restaurant one one day and then go to a mexican restaurant on the second day and all that and they will build that that narrative for themselves but the rest in itself would be just a a point in their narratives if you want people to go keep coming back you want to give them enough you know enough legal pieces for them to keep you know constructing and deconstructing and building and so look look how good i am in building cool things with this and the pieces need to be very diverse they need to um, take you to different uh times yeah, and that's what the pieces the people they were um pieces from the 60s, the 70s. It actually didn't mean much whether whether they were actually from the 60s or the 70s or the 80s, but people thought they were. And that's what's important, right? If you think something is, oh, this is very cool, I would ask people sometimes, what, where do you think this is from? Um, and they would say, oh, this is from the 60s. And someone would say, well, this is from the 90s. It, but that kind of vertigo that we call it is very important. Or they would think, oh, this is from the south of the U.S. And oh, this is from Ethiopia. This is from somewhere else. Uh, this is important. And someone also knew that. So he, he would always be changing these objects. They would, he would change the place of these objects in the restaurant. He would... Uh, so. It, That, that was what the restaurant was supposed to be like. To Even in the menu, the, the name of the dishes would be uh, like a composite of different names. Uh, you know, you would have, or you would have, for example, meatballs is a typical Scandinavian, especially Swedish dish. That's why you have them at Hakia whenever you go, because that's Swedish. Uh, but then you would have something r right after that that would be very specific to the U.S. And then you would have another. And, and that's on purpose. That's to create that sense of, um, you know, the more resources that you can give to people, the better. And the more you can create um, some what we call incongruencies. So these juxtapositions that are they feel, they feel weird. They feel weird. Uh, that's very good for cosmopolitans because that weirdness gives people uh, room to construct what they think that link might be. I like that idea of the, the juxtapositions. I think you, you quoted Samuelson actually in there, and I, I forget if it was when you were talking to him directly or, or a different quote about this idea about mixing, not merging, merging, and it not being a a hot pot where everything's thrown in there and becomes one, it's more like a salad bowl where there's all of these different ingredients that get thrown in there and mixed but then can be remixed in different ways or you can pick out different parts of it. You can use it in, in really interesting ways. I think you talk about them being able to do that through space, proximal, the time, temporal, and, and the changing elements. I thought that was really interesting. That really stood out to me in the difference between a lot of what I'd say a lot of brands and retails particularly are doing where they're trying to create a consistent experience. They're trying to create one brand image and that flows through everything that they do. And here you're talking about deliberately juxtaposing things and, and mixing them together and them not merging into one. I mean, I just found that sort of idea really unique And, and quite really interesting, but also it sounds quite deliberate on the part of, of the rooster and Samuelson. 
It was. Uh, it's interesting because the, the, this uh, you, you were referring before to the notion of like me melting pot and salad bowl, which is actually a, a sociological notion of like how America was created. So there are um, many um, books on, on on this idea that America has become a, a melting pot, where the cultures have fused into what is now American culture. And and there there are like there is a different stream of research that talks about multiculturalism and how in multiculturalism and, and Australia is an example. Canada is also it's more like a salad bowl, so you wouldn't mix like it's it's all there, but you still see the differences. It's not kind of becoming one. That's not the objective of the society, anyways. But but when. Samuelson actually describes that, not just in his interview, but he also speaks um, about that in his uh, books, his cookbooks as well. Um, he uses, you know, the fact that it's a, a cooking metaphor, a salad bowl, to to refer to how what he is. So he he's very conscious of what he's trying to do. He's trying to cre recreate the salad bowl a metaphor in his restaurants and he's giving the pieces and the, the idea is that the pieces would not they're going to mix with others but they are not going to merge or fully integrate you know and become something else that's that's not the purpose um very different and to be honest when we first saw this we we thought wow how how, how does this work i mean what why does this work how does this why does the salad bowl work for people no, what's the mechanism behind it? So we know that you know retailing and performance is very much based on on, on theater uh, theory and metaphors. So we know there's front row, a back row, you know, backstage, front stage. You have different roles. You have scripts. That's that's how retail plays out. So I went back into theater uh, and I wanted to see if someone had talked about this into theater, and. And um, it was interesting because they had, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, theater of uh, uh, Bertolt Brecht, I hope I'm saying his name right, Bertolt Brecht, uh, maybe he's German. Um, he was trying to bring, um, you know, some kind of consciousness to the working classes through his theater. And what he would do is that he would present his uh, play, but he would interrupt his play on purpose uh, to make a comment about what was happening on the play, or or he would put some incongruencies or some inconsistencies in the story that would get people to. It's the opposite of the avatar thing. You, know, you would stop and think, why is this happening? You know, and, and if you see some, you know, like the larval lar three years kind of, uh, you know, dogma positioning, it's all about interfering with the narrative and creating uh, things that are that feel weird. And this, the weirdness, the weirdness is is supposed to cause you to reflect and think, and and for um, you know in this case the consumer or or the customer to uh, fill the gap uh, to his own ideas or so it becomes more participatory. So that that's what you 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 manage. So even if you're not creating necessarily a, a cosmopolitan as in multicultural. Uh, place like Samuel Wilson, if you want to uh, give more power to consumers, you have to work with open scripts, not closed scripts, so, so that you can let them choose and do you know, whatever they want. You just need to provide the resources. So it's a different understanding of the role of, the, of retailers. You're not 
providing the full script. You're just providing tools for people to become what they want to become. It's not for everyone, but it's it works for cosmopolitan consumers. Yeah, providing them, I think you said before, it's like the Lego pieces. You know, you give them the parts, but allow them to construct it, combine them, use them in whatever creative ways springs to their mind. Yeah, and and uh, also, you know, sometimes you buy Lego and you have the picture of the airplane that you can write. There, there is some... There are some cues of what you might be able to do with it. And so someone else does that quite well, actually. They are what we call the coding cues and recognition cues. The recognition cues would be similar to having that, that plane. So uh, you would sometimes see in cookbooks or in, in some of his promotional materials, some ideas of what you would find in the restaurant. In, the, in those descriptions, you would see... Um, ways that people would be putting together things. So that would be an idea of what you would see there. So it's like, oh, let's play this game. You can be whatever you want, but including X, Y, and Z. And so this is like this is like a, a possible identities, possible things that you could do at the restaurant. Um, the other ones, what we call decoding uh, cues, are more, uh, for example, if you went to his blog, he he would sometimes say, well, you know, I have four new objects in my, on my wall. Uh, one is this boxing gloves from 1960s and all that. It's kind of almost like saying you, you start like, this is how we play the game. I'm going to play that with three objects for you. And then you're going to go there and continue playing the game. So it's uh, very clever uh, and it works. Um, it also works because, as you said, we said in the beginning, there were different levels so the objects, you could start the game at different levels. So if some objects were very easy to decipher, like, oh, I know this is Abba from Sweden, you know, and I know this is Kangaroo from Australia, you know, something very basic. But, uh, but then you would, you, the game is interesting for cosmopolitans because they would start seeing there are more subtle uh, cues in there. The objects are more difficult. And they would say, well, I know there is a meaning to that because everything here has a meaning, but I don't know what the meaning is. So we need to find out and we need to talk to my friends and I need to, talk to try to find out. And you, you grab them by this, you know, this kind of uh, need to understand the world and the cultures and, and maybe someone else understands it better than them and that they can, you know. So it's very clever all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. You mentioned there, you know, that that can really work and, and it obviously works in this setting and it works with Samuelson. But you also mentioned that, you know, he himself has had quite a cosmopolitan history. So is this something that is going to be unique to certain places? Is this an idea that you think other brands, other retailers, this idea of, of appealing to cosmopolitans or even just this idea of appealing to customers through juxtaposition, giving them those Lego pieces? You know, is this something that other brands could look at applying? And, and if so, you know, how could they even start thinking about it? Now, that's a good question. Um, so one thing that's, uh, I mean, the fact that Samuelson's story is also a cosmopolitan story gives him um, some license to, to bring some resources in and be perceived as authentic because he, he has that in his own history. But it's not a necessary item. Not everything that is there is related to his own history. So uh, I've, like, What's not in the paper 
but health. So he opened a restaurant in Miami later and, and then one in, in London as well. And what was interesting is that while uh, Red Rooster Harlem had uh, a lot of local things from Harlem, the ones in Miami uh, obviously tried to connect to the Hispanic, um, you know, some of the Hispanic references in, in the U.S. because that's where they are concentrated. And, and that's not part of uh, Samuelson's um, background. Right, so it's still it's still the same uh, grammar of cosmopolitans or the same kind of structure of juxtaposition, but it's just with other things. So it, it doesn't preclude it at all. And there are places that do that uh, well as well. You know, if you um, in Melbourne, if you go to like the Butterfly, um, um, what's the name of the the place that has uh, some shows and uh, the, the Butterfly? Oh, forgot now. Um, it's in the the city. Um, it has uh, a, a bit of these, you know, it brings that curiosity, uh, that um, idea of um, I can go there and I can find some uh, butterfly club. I remember now. It can give you some, some or maybe I can find something interesting here, <clears throat> but it can apply, be applied to other places. Um, in the U.S., for example, there is a, a chain of supermarkets called Trader Joe's, and it's of, obviously for you know, uh, more people with uh, more cultural capital and, you know, you would find actually spread in some areas of the U.S. And Trader Joe's plays very well with that. So they have like the products come from different places and they they have a story that is attached to it. Sometimes the story is real. Sometimes the story is even invented. It doesn't matter so much because they, it's not that people are after the authentic stories. They are after the stories. They are after consuming this diversity and the juxtapositions. So some some things that Trader Joe's have are blatantly a fake, but that's on purpose. That's a play on even the fact that you will know that it's fake is a, a play on the complexity, on the fact that cosmopolitans would pick that up while others wouldn't. You know, so this is uh, that's the that's the joke inside the joke. You know, this is the, the, the what's interesting for cosmopolitans. You know, I'm going to put a puzzle here. You even have to know what is real and what's fake in here. Um, we see hotels doing that. Uh, coffee, uh, cafes, places and all that. So, yeah, I mean, you can do that anywhere, actually, if you're catering for this type of consumer. Yeah, amazing. I'm fascinated to check out some of those other places and uh, definitely, I guess, look out for more now some of those juxtapositions and how they draw me in uh, as a consumer. And I think that idea of, you know, immersion can be can be good, but sometimes breaking that immersion and getting consumers to think and really apply is a really fascinating um, idea. But, Bernardo, this has been a fascinating chat. Um, I could talk about this for hours, but uh, we should get you let you get back on with uh, some of the other amazing work that you do. Uh, just quickly to wrap up, you know, what are some of the other things that you're working on at the moment? What can we look out for in terms of some other big ideas, some other research projects or things? You know, what, what's the next fascinating thing that you're diving into? Um, I'm working with a, a colleague from RMIT, Francis Farrelly, um, 
on a project that looks at, and also Diane Martin on a project that looks at coffee culture in, in Melbourne and how that helps uh, bring a sense of place to the city. Uh, and so the idea is how, the theoretical idea behind it is how, how the culture that is around the product uh, helps people feel more connected to a place. And you, I mean, any Melbourne would know that, right? So it's, uh, it's how do you use products and the culture around products to create that, uh, to enhance the sense of place. So can we bring more people or can we get even people out of COVID now, you know, lockdown and all that? Can we bring people to the center of Melbourne, to the CBD uh, through coffee culture? Uh, this is one of my current projects. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, amazing. It, it, as you say, very probably timely. And I think that idea of, you know, revitalizing the CBDs through, you know, experiences and, and coffee culture could be really valuable as we sort of uh, see more hybrid working and uh, and work from home drawing us in. So, look, I'll be fascinated to uh, to hear that. We might have to have you back on again when you've got some more to share to us. But thank you so much for joining me on Shopology today. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it was my absolute pleasure, uh, Jason. Thank you very much for having me and listening to the crazy ideas. Well, thank you for joining me for this episode of Shopology. I'd love for you to rate and subscribe to the show for future episodes and help me share some of these insights as broadly as possible. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Shopology Show or me at Dr. J Retail or DRJ Retail and find me on LinkedIn at Jason Parliament. Please do reach out if you have any suggestions for the show or future topics. Cheers. <laughs>